The following podcast is designed to provoke thought, spark dialogue, educate, and entertain. The perspectives and language may trigger a range of emotions, from laughter to angst and possibly anger. We welcome your feedback, and thank you for listening. Have you ever read a good book that was thought-provoking and wanted to share it with your friends? Well, you come to the right place, because that's what we do here. Welcome to the Bruss Bookshelf with your host, Lennon Giddens, Walter Atkins, Donovan Snipe, Stephen Gilliam, and Dr. Harvey Hinton III. A real talk book review podcast where we give you our raw commentary on our thoughts. Enjoy. The Black Tax is an extraordinary analysis of how anti-black biases has created a detrimental tax that black Americans pay in auto, housing, online, job, lending markets, and how this has suffocated our entrepreneurial spirit and significantly reduced our ability to leave a sizable inheritance to our children. The black tax, however, does not focus on this injustice. Instead, it quantifies the fiscal impact of the tax, provides data to support it, then awful ways that black America can offset the effects. The information in this book, The Black Tax, is based on decades of research. The statistics are shocking and show the extent to which black America has been placed at a severe economic disadvantage. Regardless of our current situation, we can use our limited resources to empower our businesses and neighborhoods. To do that, we're going to have to invest in our banks, businesses, and communities and sacrifice a short-term customer gratification for a long-term economic transformation. Check this out. I'm excited tonight, bros. We got um I got a special guest. You know, we we know how the frat rose. Friendship is essential to the soul. And I want to introduce y'all to somebody who has been a, a friend of mine before the Omega fraternity. Listen, I met this bro in 1996 at North Carolina Anti State University on our football team. And how I met him was we had curfew doing um, you know, our summer conditioning. And it was like the first night. And it was a couple of dudes that was, you know, they was going to do their own thing. They went out and it was, it was hanging out or whatnot. And so the next day, you know, the old heads, you know, they was going to get back at these dudes. And so they was running these dudes, making them do up downs and all this kind of stuff. And it was just dude with his shirt off just going, y'all can't break me. Y'all can't break me. Y'all can't break me. And that's the dude we got on this mic tonight. <laughs> I'm trying to tell you straight up. This is the real G right here, man. This is my man all the way from 1996. My homeboy, Majib Hassan. He's a father. He's a husband. He's a wealth management advisor for Rock One Advisors. He's a Grammy-nominated platinum music producer. He's a film producer, a Vimy, a video blog developer, and he's worked with artists like Mary J. Blige, uh, Rick Ross, Trick Daddy, Blackstreet, oh, um, 
and check this out. He got this artist named John Claude. Let me tell you, even your boys on John Claude. You got to check that joint out. It's pretty live. But look, let me tell you something. I got this man coming to you from the Kai Gamma Gamma chat to Spring 09. My boy, Majig Hassan. Come on, Majig. You got to give it to him, Shy. You got to tell him what we're going to do this is some A&T shit here, but we good, we good to have him on. Go ahead, brother. What's up, fellas? How y'all doing? Behold, and how pleasant <laughs> it is to be amongst the brothers, man. Thanks for Absolutely. being thanks for, uh, you know, y'all can't break me. Let me kick it with y'all, y'all can't break I, I, me. I forgot all about that, bro. <laughs> y'all can't break me. Y'all can't break me. <laughs> oh, yeah? You get your David Goggin on? I mean, I don't know what it was. I was just, you know, being young <laughs> and ignorant. <laughs> Young, ignorant, and, and not disciplined. That's what we were doing. <laughs> so what brought us together is this book, The Black Tax. What you thought about it, Majid? Um, I thought it was an interesting book. Like, I, I, I thought it, it had a great perspective. It came with a lot of reasons of why African-Americans aren't as financially liter- literate as they should be or can be. But it's not, to me, it's not that we could and it's not that we can't. It's because we were deliberately... Um, you know, tricked off the path of, you know, empowerment. And um, that book just goes into details on um, really all the different ways the government did it and set it up and who was, you know, complicit in it. So I thought it was a great book. Um, and I think it's a good place for us to to start to turn ourselves around as black people is, you know, identifying the good things that the book said and less, you know, work to get ourselves out of those uh, situations. Harvey mentioned that you were a financial advisor. Do you run into a situation where a lot of black people don't have the mindset or the capital to save and do the things that they say you're supposed to do to be ready for retirement? I mean, I think that black people have the mindset and I think they have the, the, the amount of money to save. I just don't think that black people um are focused on just saving like we're more focused on things than saving like it's almost like the thing that we buy the car that we may buy the clothes that we may buy may give us the temporary satisfaction of making it versus actually saving it and making it so i don't think that is we, we we can't do it i just don't think that we uh put things in priority and and focus on what really matters like we get kind of tricked into thinking, you know, looking like it is better than actually being like it. So I think that's where if we start with the actual foundation of trying to actually do it, I don't think the fake it till you make it concept will, you know, distract us because I feel like that's a huge distraction in the black community. I I didn't like the book personally, but I do think it did had a lot had a lot of good information about um, you know, he had like the survey section where he was like the black tax in real estate, the black tax in e-commerce, the black tax in labor. I mean, I think that was the the best part of the book. But um, I do think that, you know, we're tempted to uh, anecdotally say things and have views that aren't supported by the facts, like saving, you know, and, and entrepreneurship. And, you know, black people do save uh a good portion of their income and we do the quote unquote right things as a demographic and we have data to back that up. There's a, a professor, Dr. Sandy, Sandy uh, Darity out of Duke University that does a lot of uh, empirical research on, you know, basically uh, 
when black people shame themselves or white people shame black people and be like, you guys aren't doing the right thing. He's like, actually, no, we are doing the right thing, but this system's not set up for us to uh, excel. And it's more of an interrogation of capitalism rather than individual black people or even black people at a societal level. Um, You know, not saying that black people or any people don't need financial literacy to survive in our, our situation in capitalism. But he's just saying like, Hey, we actually do save more. Uh, we actually do spend our money on uh, quote unquote good things, but we're still not getting ahead. We do save, but I don't think we save as a vast majority. The people who do save are the people who aren't in trusting of the banks. Kind of like Fred Sanford and son when he used to save all his money up in the sock up underneath his mattress. So we do save. Uh, <laughs> but no, we're not trusting of the institution. And this book shows you why we're not trusting of the institution and the systems that put it in place. Ma'am, I'm looking for um, a particular section um, because what we don't want to do is miss, like, okay, this is a very simple to read books, a very easy, easy written book. Um, I don't want the audience to miss. And I would say this directly that this book to me is not a matter of opinion, right? There are multiple, there are multiple perspectives when you talk about the black story within itself. Um, There are many different narratives. There's not one narrative, Um, but this book sets a premise that, it doesn't matter what you think, what you believe, what you know, what you don't know. This shit is happening regardless. And it ain't got nothing to do with whether or not you saving, financial literate, literate, whether you got the bag or not. You ain't getting what that white boy is getting. And this book, it has the numbers to back it. Not only do they have the numbers to back it, they have the lawsuits to back it. And so I think what happens is we, we are very resilient people. We're very intelligent people. We know not to wallow in our sorrow and we shouldn't. And I don't think the book does that at all because it has some solutions towards the end. I think the interesting part, we start with the title, the black tax. I think the concept of a tax in a society that's working, these are dues that have to be paid that benefit the greater good of all. And in in the case of this book, this tax ain't for us. It's not something that we're paying on our benefit. It's definitely what we're paying is benefit the greater good of, of everyone else, but it's not benefiting us one bit. And so it's actually the, 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 the burden, you know, of, 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 of being black again, that doesn't have anything to do with how articulate you are, how smart you are, what you feel about the system or what you don't feel about the system, because it's based on this notion that there's an unconscious anti-black bias that exists amongst our society. And until that black anti-black bias is dealt with amongst our people, their people, whoever else, we, we better understand how to work within this, this context. So I think that, you know, it's great that we understand how we can perform better, what things we can do, um, the tools, the, what they haven't been telling us, all that kind of stuff. But this book puts it in a real, to me, a real palatable frame that says, hey, this is what's happening. Whether you like it or not, I'm sorry. <laughs> and this is why we got to be more intentional about working within our own communities. I just want to point out, he talks about explicit and implicit biases. Um, right. Right. And so, right. so basically but, but, what he's saying is that people... 
people are doing this without even conscious awareness that they're doing it. It is right. They're just living within the system and taxing on black people. I thought the book was pretty um, interesting. It, it was good to um, have pr- perspective and like concrete numbers on things that I think black people are kind of aware of, but like we're not concrete uh, knowledgeable about like there is a, like black people know there's a there's a cost to being black in the country, um, but I don't think we can. I don't think we always know how to quantify that. And this book does a really good job of doing so. I think we know about a lot of good qualitative um, ways to express that difference, but like to actually see the numbers and how that affects you or affects black folks um, in the economy. I think it was pretty uh, refreshing. It kind of exposes some of the dirty little secrets that industries across the board use to keep black people as a permanent underclass. And it also just highlights a like a roadmap of, of things that, that happen, um, you know, in the automotive industry and in the insurance industry, the real estate industry of, uh, of things you should, you should try to, now that you're exposed to the information, things you should try to avoid uh, when dealing with these kind of individuals, you know, and these companies. Some things are not non-preventable and some things you cannot avoid, but, you know, it gives you an understanding. So going into it now, you know, OK, well, look, this is how I can avoid the situation from happening to me. In this book, I have personal experiences for every topic that he said in the book. For example, real estate. I own two properties. I thought my credit score was really, really competitive when I bought my first rental home, but I ended up getting a 5.25 percent interest rate. And this was during a time when the interest rate was supposed to be low. My credit score was a 760, but I ended up getting a real high interest rate. And I was all, and I was asking my lender, why is my interest rate so high? I thought my credit score was, was pretty decent, but I still end up with a high interest rate. That's one thing. So reading this book, I was like, hmm, I wonder did that happen to me? Second thing, my experience when I first graduated college. When I first graduated college with my first career job, I made $31,500 a year. That wasn't enough. I I had to end up living in a room to rent and I bought a used vehicle. I said that to say because these white boys had got hired on on my job. They were able to buy a house downtown Fort Myers, Florida. They had brand new vehicles and they was doing pretty well. Oh, let me back up. They told me when I first got my job that the salary was non-negotiable. It was either take it or leave it. I had to take it because I was already in a financial bind in college and I couldn't afford my rent. So I took the job thinking that the the salary was non-negotiable. Come to find out, the white boys that got hired after me and I'm training them, they got paid. They came in with a salary (laughs) $10,000 higher than my salary. Also, they were able to buy a house because they had money. It uh, money that out. was passed down from their family. So their family was subsidizing out. their income and their parents gave them a large lump sum of money to put down on a house to, to purchase a house that was downtown Fort Myers, Florida. So I said all that to say a lot of this stuff These in the book when it comes getting, in terms of interest rates, the board. in terms of salary, folks. in terms of black how far back we are in black inheritance. Tax. It was all in fruition to me, and I had first-hand experience with These white boys gave more than me. But, Lenny, you're right. I mean, because think about, like, how that, 
how that affects your uh, your ability to create wealth over the long term. So you're already starting off ten thousand dollars less a year. So two years goes by, three years go by, you already made. You said thirty thousand. You're making. Yeah, I started at thirty-one. That's like yeah, half your salary. Yeah, and then on top of that, you're paying more money than everybody else for your place to stay. And now everybody's looking at you like, why can't you save? Why can't you just do the right thing? Why you always living beyond your means, whereas the reality is our even means if he are wasn't not- living be- even if he wasn't living beyond his means. Like he he said something that the white people white guys who came in under him made ten thousand more. And but this is what he might not realize too. A lot of these white guys and and and, and you know people from affluent backgrounds they know about different tax laws and things growing up. For example, like there's a gift tax for kids um, that each parent can give their kid in 2021. Each kid, each, each parent can gift their kid $15,000. So if you're married, if you come from a married household and your parents want to gift you $15,000, that's, that's $30,000 they can give you. Meaning they can give it to you and the kid not pay any income tax on it. Well, you can do that for 10 years and the kid at birth a kid is 10 years old, not even uh, including appreciation. A kid is 10 years old. Their parents may have gifted them 300000 So that kid that's graduated from college after that, that might have doubled to 600000 or whatever it could have done since it's, since it's been issued. But that kid graduated from college coming from a single-parent household who hasn't put any money away for their kid. And that other kid coming out of college um, that mom or dad has gifted them money throughout the years, man, they're working with a whole different credit score and a whole different down payment than you at 31. So it ain't like there's nothing you could have did to to change any of that situation anyway because your parents weren't in a situation where they could gift you money. Like your parents are might be first generation college uh people. They might not even know about different things and insurance and finance to to where they can pass wealth on to their kids. So it's a lot of things that really enable black people. And it's not that we just don't know about it. And, you know, the quicker you know about it, the more you can act on it. But until you know about it and act on it, like you're still 10, 20 yards or 10, 20 years behind some of these strategies. And that's like, you can look that up. That's a, uh, just look up gift tax, uniform gift, gift act to minors, something like that. Bro, what, what did you uh, what did you do when you found out that you were making ten k less than your white employee or uh, coworkers? Not a damn thing. Well, back then, <laughs> I, uh, like Harvey said, no, I, I I didn't do a damn thing because I was dealing with I was dealing with something else that was going simultaneously with that. We we had a, a golf outing, and I went to a golf outing. Now, mind you, I was working for this company. It's called Syntex Homes, and in Southwest Florida. Now, out of 500 and like, I think 555 employees, it was only three black people working there. That goes into another thing into this book. Out of those three black people, it was only one. And I was that one. I was the only field supervisor. So I was the only person that was there building homes. And I was building homes for retired white people from up north. So we had went on this golf outing. So while we were out there, they started getting drunk. Then they started calling me BG, black guy. What's up, BG? What's up, BG? BG? Y'all, that made me feel so small. 
and I couldn't say anything because everybody was doing it and who I was going to say something to. <laughs> yeah, well, who I'm gonna say something to. And I didn't want to be the guy that oh he, stand the cut. Yeah, he stand the cut. What he's uh <laughs> Stand the cut. Ben, Benjamin Crow. Like, I didn't want to. This was like this was in 2002, and I didn't be the one. I didn't want to be that, the only normal. black guy. And here I am, the only black guy that's playing what they call the race card. You know, so that made me feel small. So for me to bring that up and then also bring up my salary, I didn't know who to turn to. I didn't know. You know, that company was a big company. It was like little me going up against a hold big on, juggernaut. Hold on, Lenny. Hold so on. I got to do this, man. I'm sorry. I don't want the readers to be mis mistaken like your your story is lining up is like qualitative evidence for these numbers that supported in this book and like everybody has a story to mm -hmm. tell and i think we got we got to the place for me at least as an educator in my own experience people act like they didn't want to hear these stories yeah people act like if you told a story something was wrong with you you were supposed to fix yourself up and not be offended by this thing happening to you and what this book is telling us is it don't even matter if you was trying and, and knew exactly. the right code. Exactly. You still so, don't get cheated. Like I was like, there was cheated and gaslit too. Like the fact that black people are kind of told or is, is implied that what we're talking about is uh, like in our heads. Like that's, I think that's the most insidious part of the whole, the whole system because it's like, we know something's happening. I feel something's happening. Right. But you can't prove it, but now, exactly. with the, but but now with this book is giving, you know, what I'm saying concrete evidence that this shit is happening every day. It's showing you right where to look. Right. I mean, I remember to your point, Lenny, being on a job and the white boy saying that he had twenty percent down payment on a home that he got from his parents, and then I should just ask my parents. And like a sucker, that shit went through my head. And you know that it don't end well when you bring them white people ideas home to the black end well at all. <laughs> Better. Hey, that's a that's a that's a very that's a very subtle way to say it. You thought your name was Todd? It is not end well. <laughs> she did. And, and, you know, but gee, let me ask you this, man. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, going back into your work as a financial planner, this morning when we woke up. And I started reflecting on this book. It was Sunday morning, obviously. And, you know, that's church time. And so I'm looking at what the book is talking about in terms of leaving a legacy for your children's children. And in my church time moment, a lot of times we're talking about escaping, getting away, what's going to happen after we leave this place. And we're not focusing on the legacy that we're leaving behind. And so I'm just curious, you know, um, have you seen or where does the role of faith come in with people who you may have worked with as it relates to how they use their money or how they might invest their money or how willing they would be to invest their money? I mean, everybody looks at, you know, charity, I would say about the same that people who believe in charity as far as like where it is, whether it's church, whether it's you know, something health related, whether it's a, a you know, a homeless shelter, whatever it, what it is, people donate through charity different different ways. Some of some people do it to really just offset their tax obligation. Some people do it because they want to make a want to make a difference. Um, I think a lot of people, when it comes to like, 
when you say when you saying people when it, when it comes to church, like what did you mean by like why did you bring up church with charity? Like you're talking about just like tithing, authoring. Like what do you what do you mean? Well, with, like it was it was beyond charity. It's this idea of legacy, right? And this idea that we're talking about wealth building and leaving a legacy for your children's children. That's not the conversation I hear on. I used to hear on Sunday mornings. I mean, when you're talking about, when I talk about leaving a legacy for your children's children, like I talk about like your brokerage account, just being like straight up and direct, like anything that you invest in a brokerage account, um, you know, after you live off the assets in retirement and it's time to distribute the assets, you want to leave those to your kids, your community, your church. Some of the easiest ways to leave a legacy could be insurance for some people, because it's just like, you know, paying a bill. It's just like paying the monthly premiums on it. That's for insurance. When it comes to investments, like you can leave, you can you can invest in three things. You can invest in securities in the stock market. You can invest in a business, or you can invest in um, you know some type of real estate. So when it comes for you leaving your legacy to to, to people, it's really going to be whatever you put your what your time and your your talent and your treasure into. If that's real estate, there it is. If that's, you know, a life insurance policy, there it is. If that's but, but what I'm asking you is how from from your just random knowledge of the people who you've interacted with, how has their faith impacted how they invest and how they manage their money? That's my question. I mean, I don't know, man. Like I kind of keep I keep I don't really introduce faith to everybody when we're, you know, investing, just to be honest. Like Rich people can be atheists sometimes. In the book, he touched upon how these big institutions, the ones that were sued for financially discriminating against people of color, how they sought out the black church to uh, and the pastors of the black church to steer them into these subprime loans and doing business with these predatory lenders. So right. I guess I don't know if you was trying to uh, pull that out of. I wasn't trying to pull anything in particular. It's just it's and it's, it's something I'm trying not to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to, I'm trying not to say something. I'm trying to dance around something. Okay. As it relates to what our faith experience is, because I'm what I'm trying to say is I don't recall in my faith experience a conversation around leaving a legacy of wealth for my children's children. And so what I'm learning about wealth at this stage in the game is much different than how I thought about wealth coming out of undergrad with my faith being where it was. And so as I've matured in my faith, I've also matured in how I understand wealth. And so that's. Again, I'm, I'm trying to dance around something. Well, I think your experience just tells to that, um, that that greater black experience of you'll get yours in the by and by. So don't worry about <laughs> what the hell's going on on earth right now. Because that's pretty much what we've been talking taught like our whole life. And it's like, well, talk to me, Donovan. Talk- and they're like, well, we're doing this battle, right? So, and nobody talk else believes that. So why, why are black... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Donovan. No, you got it. So that just kind of goes into like the whole socialization of the black church and where they teach us to look for our reward and to buy and buy. And so we're never really, it's never really stressed that we should be looking for something on earth or even preparing a legacy for, on earth where every other culture in America is like, 
build something for your children. These are the, the tools to build them. To and this bars. is how you make those tools multiply and supply yeah, forever. Was build, so black folks are kind of Mars, missing out of that conversation for the greater part of, I don't know, two and a half centuries. Um, and we're getting into it now. Um, and I think that's good. Um, hopefully we do finances like how we do everything else in the world, like basketball and football and every other thing we're magical and we just come in and kind of skew the game and Manson Musa the whole system. But like as of right now, um, I don't think our churches are equipped to kind of teach us about financial literacy because I mean they're our church is only filled with us and who's been teaching us this information over the past whenever. I mean Granted, we're all we're all teaching ourselves now, and that's that's fine and dandy. But it's a it's a little bit harder to I don't know write your dissertation if you've never been to class. If that if that if that makes sense, it's like you can't. I mean, I will say, Donovan. Like, I saw I saw like a change to where like the the Monday through Friday church uh-huh. was open to conversations like this. Maybe the Saturday church was open to conversations like this, but the but the Sunday church didn't talk like this at all. Right, the Sunday church, the Sunday church was definitely by and by. Your blessings gonna come in the afterlife, and they would, they would, they would try to encourage you to come to, you know, Monday through Saturday church to, to hear some of this other stuff that you needed. But Sunday time was definitely heaven time. Dog, have y'all have y'all ever got a financial literacy course in church? I mean, they tried it. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. like the, the whole Nehemiah prayer and all that concept of wealth attainment. Um, you know, I've had some ministers do some serious uh, sermons on tithing and that aspect of tithing and good behavior in terms of financial management. But anything that was directly dealing with some of those numbers and terms that Majid spoke to earlier, that didn't come across Sunday pulpit it's, time. It's funny, it's funny uh, how I, pastors try to use tithing. They disguise it as being financially <laughs> But uh, this is what I wanted to say. We have to take into consideration that this financial literacy, leaving a legacy, and life insurance. Life insurance is something new that's afforded to black people. Black people couldn't even purchase life insurance. Now, back in the days when I used to sell life insurance, uh, people used to have a bad taste in their mouth about life insurance because they would tell you stories about how a guy used to go and knock on people's doors with his briefcase and collect their money once a month. And they thought that they were buying life insurance and they thought they was disguising it and lying to these black folks, telling them that they was buying life insurance, which, which in reality, they was buying burial insurance. So they was just buying the insurance to make sure that they had a nice casket and a nice funeral. And so black people weren't, they didn't open up uh, life insurance until like after Jim Crow. So this is something new. So a lot of the stuff that the church has been teaching us has been passed on for years, years and years. So we're so far behind. And even in this book shows that this book is like trying to quantify with through numbers on yes we're far behind and here's the evidence to show it so when we talk about church and we talk about black people in in old traditions we have to realize that you know we don't really have money like that and our grandparents grandparents didn't have money because the book talked about it's only less than two percent less than two percent less than two percent 
And I mean, I, and, and, and that's why I didn't want to just say it like in a rude way. I didn't want to approach the conversation in a rude way because the black church is very important to our development and our community. But I have to know that my, my conversations around wealth are going to be from the black church on one hand, on one side, and then my daddy on the other side talking to me very directly in ways that may appear to contradict what the black church was saying. But he might not knew the plan to what he was saying. He was just saying, <laughs> this is what you need to do with your money. And that was about it. That's about all I knew, Walt. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think I think it has to be a shift in our mind frame. Um, Donovan said that he, he doesn't think the black church has to, the means to be able to teach financial literacy. I beg to differ. Dog, back in the day, they used to bring in. Well, the church, the church itself has, has always been used as a medium to, to push the agenda of uh, American society or also the um, put on the pedestal, the civil rights uh, leaders or the Muslim leaders as well, too. So, no, I think that the amount of money that black churches collect every Sunday, year in and year out, 52 weeks out of the year, they can bring in somebody from any financial institution to to, to uh, give black folks more information about saving money, uh, investing money, and putting the money into the stock market, real estate courses, et cetera, et cetera. It would be better, more beneficial for the pastors to do so because of the fact if the church is making more money, then it's a trickle-down effect. They can spend more money with the church. No, we had a building fund in my church that I've been putting money in since I was Three years old, dog. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know where I'm going at with this conversation we right do. now. But think Am about I the it. only one that You're doesn't go to church? Um, no, I don't go either. But no, I used I to. Not, I mean, I don't go I to don't church neither. Can I ask a question? Can I ask a question that might be uh, kind of what uh, Walt is talking about based on, on tithing? Like, Walt, do you get to, like, vote on where that money goes? Like, who who decides where that money goes? Oh, no, it's all like, a ta- it's like taxes. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So, well, I, I never voted on the um, where the money goes. Of course, you were three years <laughs> I old. I just always donated. Well, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. But and then also when I when I became an adult, you know, I I still I still don't have a I don't have to go to that same exact church. But from my understanding, it seems like the the pastor, the secretary, and the higher ups in the church they pretty much uh, they they pay whatever the upkeep of the church. They put a separate account into the, the building fund, and then from that point, all the money is just dispersed. I mean, they're not, the they, they not all the, the same. Though. I mean, some some churches are very, from presentation, are very financially responsible, quote-unquote, right? Some churches we see clearly have shifted to embracing a new lifestyle, new way of being. Um, I think in a traditional church, you have a trustee board, um, I do remember going to church meetings. They might be on like fifth Sunday <laughs> after church or something, and they might present some church business. So I think each each church has its own um, way of governance. But I think that 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 by and by afterlife message. But might hard, be at the end of the day, a church is a nonprofit organization, right? It, so it is. We correct. should be able to see all the financials. The members of the no, church. no, no. You should, you should. Right. I mean, that shouldn't that shouldn't be a um, an issue. I wouldn't, right. I wouldn't think it would be. I mean, because for me, the church doesn't doesn't seem like uh for me it does, it seems like okay, we're all putting in uh ten percent, right? 
And that's like a very revolutionary thing, right? We're all going to pool our money for this, for this, uh, you know, greater cause or whatever. But it doesn't seem like uh, people I know have the experience of like, okay, we all pulled our money and we decided that nobody's going to go hungry in the church. It's more like we all pulled our money and we hope the building gets built. It's like, <laughs> so it doesn't seem like it's very uh, like, you know, freeing or it just seems like it's kind of, for me, the church has always been like uh, authoritarian well, rather than a, a liberatory uh, experience. So, you know. And that's, and, and that's fair, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to say that directly, and I, again because why not? I think that we we have because there's many different experiences. Yeah. There's many no no no. There's many there's many different experiences, right? The the book this book was the second oh. book. The first one was CPR for the soul, right? So you have these religious undertones in this text, right? And 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 so it's just. I know that that church is a is a it's a staple in our community and it's got to it's got to play a role. And just my experiences, I just shared those parts with it. I know that people go to other churches and have different experiences based on different things. So I don't want to I don't want to land it all there. But I just thought it was interesting that, you know, we're talking about leaving something for your children's children. And where do we get that message yeah. from? Church. Well, I. I mean, I, I, I agree, right? Everyone has their own religious experience and that's fine. But I do think as black people, we're very tentative to critique each other or our institutions. And I think if we're going to have an honest discussion Absolutely. to move forward, we should be able to critique those things and and point out, you know, that, hey, the, there's these issues with this and, and whatever. But, you know, not to dwell on the church thing too much. Because that's certainly there. Right, because it's certainly there. But, like, when we talk about our children's children and we're talking about, like, you know, mutual funds and money and stuff like that, like, do y'all believe in climate change? Like, our children's children's world is not going to look yeah. like this at all. Like, if you believe even right. the most conservative right. estimates of what's going to happen to our entire, like, global experience, like, you know, I think... If we uh, were in 1950 and we were like, yeah, you got to, you know, you got to set up uh, life insurance and put equity in it. You got to get this. You got to get that. Like your kids probably need to learn how to farm. Uh, they probably need some land that's theirs and not financial assets. Like it's going to get pretty crazy for our children's children. But that still doesn't advocate you from doing your responsibility as a parent and making sure that. You know, even though those things take into account, but you still have to make sure that you're doing your part. And climate change is true, but they gonna also need some money. So, so check this out. So check this out. So, so again, we're not talking about a debate here, right? The brother starts off with talking about this this concept of optics. You know, we just came through the holiday season, and my family we did a little Kwanzaa <laughs> thing for for seven days. We went through each day just kind of reflecting on the word and just connecting with my cousins. But this, this book talks about this concept of optics and these will be pillars of society. So what Steve is talking about is a particular context that we have to consider this idea that the climate change is here. So, so we have climate change, we have an awareness of climate change. How does that impact our optics, you know, opportunity, trade, industry, innovation, capital, skills, security, that farm that we that we're talking about has to be a business because there's an opportunity for that. And then that these other things, trade, industry, innovation, capital, skill, security have to come off that farm. So 
it's not just going back to old school farming. I challenge everybody to go find you some, you know, six by four or whatever little piece of land in your yard and put some seeds down and see how well you can manage that. Like farming ain't easy. Right. right? But it's this concept to Steve's point, the context that we're living in. We got to be aware of that. The, 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 the climate is changing. What kind of opportunity? What does that look like for our children's future? And they and they also gonna need money too. <laughs> they gotta have money. They like money ain't money. going nowhere. And that's I, the I, point. I, like money ain't going nowhere. Like money ain't gonna stop. Cash might. Yeah, cash might, because big Bitcoin might take over. No, like uh, I don't know nothing about Bitcoin. Not a damn thing, Wall. You somebody gotta talk about Bitcoin. Uh, I don't know nothing about it. Not right now, no. Not right now, not right. <laughs> In the book, when he talks about how did we get here, they stripped everything from us. And when I was reading Yes, yes. One of the things that jumped out to me was black people's resiliency and how when they freed us from the slave, we don't even have to go back into slavery. We could just start after the emancipation. Once they freed us, they came up with rules to strip us from money. So imagine, um, imagine a whole race of people have no ownership, no money, and then there's laws put in place where you can continue to not have any money and no ownership. And when they came up with the vagrancy law, that's when the term was coined, damn if I do, damn if I don't. Because either I'm going to work for this man and let him exploit me, or and I can be free, or I'm not going to work for him, and they're going to take me to jail. Then I have to work for him for free, and they're going to starve me to death. And what he said, there was a 45% mortality rate in convict leasing. We lost a lot of soldiers, bro. We lost we a lot lost of people. A lot, but we still yeah. here. No, no, no. We still here, Definitely. but we lost a lot of people. Man. You know, we got we got a few stories of those who popped their head out and was able to be something. And we make those few stories like that's what everybody was supposed to do. We lost a lot of people. That 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 story you just spoke about that took out a lot of people. That that robbed a lot of people of our opportunities. And we just we just we just to your point of resilience, we don't even now, think about. I want to point yeah. this part out in the book. It said when they was talking about convict leasing, convict leasing in the state of Alabama made it affordable for your average sharecroppers, the poor white man who couldn't afford a lot of slaves to get hands to work his farm. To quote the book, it said, to accelerate the time to get a conviction, Southern officials developed the concept of a plea bargaining, which circumvent the 13th Amendment requirement that one be duly convicted. So when you think about the laws, I have this guy, he's not a bro. He was online with us, Red Rob. He's He's an attorney now in Houston. And he told me, he said one of the things that bothers him so much is after when he was going through law school was when he was finding out the origins of the laws. So when I read that, I was like, damn, the term plea bargain. I mean, the whole concept of plea bargain came so so they can expedite the process of picking you up from the street, throwing a, uh, some type of uh, erroneous charge on you to get you working for free because you don't have a job. So. I mean, there was no shiftless niggas during that time because none. Yeah, so if you no. out just walked around with, you know, just shiftless niggas was created by, by the law. Right, right, right. But if you was out walking, they can literally snatch you up, put you in chains, and throw a charge on you and make you plead. And then it went on to say, 
It said government placed a cost of trial on the accused and captured and captured blacks understood that fighting the system meant a longer sentence. Therefore, defendants were expected to plea bargain or confess judgment in order to lower the cost of the trial. And let me tell Basically, you from somebody who's experienced that firsthand, that's exactly what the system does. It pressures you into either trying to confess or it tries to bankrupt you. So imagine you already don't have nothing facing a system that is trying to extract every bit of money out of your pocket. You ain't got no choice but to go into it and, like you said, be a slave to it. I think the black taxes is... There's so many things that are taxing among black people in this society. Like this book kind of gives us a good framework, but I don't think I don't think it captures everything because like there's a psychological toll or psychological tax that we pay um, because the rates of right. black mental health and depression have they don't even want to know this. always been the more, sky high. The more you notice, um, the more it drives you crazy sometimes, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, how many people try to talk um, you off the ledge, Donovan? Hey, bro, I know, you know, I know you read those books, but you better be careful. But how they say it, Steve? You better be careful. You read all that commie stuff. You better be careful. You better pray for you read that stuff, man. You know. <laughs> and then once you find out the origins of Jesus and how that's also been, you know what? Never mind. Hey, man, you got to listen to what's in your heart, man. You don't be reading all them books, man. <laughs> them books was written by a man. You, hey, we don't know about them books. I mean, I, 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 I think Donovan's getting at what my, my main critique of the book is, and it doesn't have any critique of capitalism, right? Like, it's missing it's missing some black taxes that we're paying, but it's also missing the context of what he's talking about in general. I agree. Like, like I agree. It, this is a, a racial analysis book, but, like, this black-white divide is only created – to, to keep the haves and the have-nots for anything. And when you kind of apply his solution, which is like, okay, we need to have this solidarity economy where we only, you know, we circulate our black dollars. Um, you know, I think that's a good survival solution. But at the end of the day, right, that doesn't like, okay, what about the poor white people in this country? Like, why are they still poor? Uh, what about uh, Jap- Japan or Europe or South Africa or other places with these racially homogenous capitalist economies? And people are going through the same things, right? And these differences, whether it's black or white or whatever, are just invented and created by the the, those with capital to exploit those without capital. So for me, when I hear financial literacy and, uh, you know, this guy writes a whole book about it. And at the end, he's like, buy black. I'm like, bruh, like, thanks. Like you could have just said buy black and everybody would have been like, rude. Like we're, we're buying black. That sounds, sounds good to us, but like, that's not going to help. I got that, I got that new that's car. not going to help nobody. That sounds like a legitimate solution to me. All right. Killer Mike three months ago. Right. All right. Yeah, dog, but look, but look, but look. But dog, we can't, we can't, we can't. Like, I, I think we, we also got to applaud the 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 author for doing the research as well, too. Oh heck yeah, twenty five years. Yeah. That's a lot of research, a lot of time. My, my my uncle calls the ass hours. When you seen your black ass down <laughs> mm. in the library, uh, in front of a computer <laughs> at your damn dinner table, and you just Relentless. reading information, Relentless. information, information. Ass like hours in that right, <laughs> right. So I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> right. So I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you don't like ass hours, team. So came to my office for these ass hours. Obviously, we, we, we know the solution is to buy black, but that's not the solution. So obviously, we know the solution is to buy black, but that's what's one of the solutions that he's he's given now. 
He's saying, by black, but, he, but it, it, it has to be an effort, dog. We, we, it has to be an effort. But he's saying, he's saying by black, but he's also giving you means in which to go about doing research. He's saying, like, put in your supply chain. If you're a black business owner, right? He's saying that in your supply chain, you should you should also service and uh, choose other black businesses in your supply chain. So if I if I make T-shirts, I should use a black printing company. I should use a black T-shirt manufacturing company. I should use a black packaging manufacturing company. I should use a black labeling company. And therefore, it's going to stimulate my local economy, which in results is going to stimulate more jobs, hopefully, if they buy black as well, too. And then ask them to do the same exact thing in their black business supply chain. I get what he's saying, dog. How hard is it for you practice. to do that in your in your world, Walt, and, and, and what you do? Because we saw Killer Mike, right? And I think Killer Mike... Killer Mike put it on display, and you know that was that was still cinematic. And I think, I think it's very difficult to only buy black, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Well, what does that look like in your world if you was able to to try to do that? In my world, so so to give the the, the audience a uh, a good foundation of what I do. So I own an asphalt paving company. We make we build roads. Uh, build parking lots, uh, serve, do drainage, do sign installation. We do anything with as pertains to a parking lot, parking lot maintenance, facility maintenance, the whole nine, right? In my world, to answer your question, Harvey, there's only a few vendors that I can use uh, in my supply chain. Uh, and that's, well, I can use my T-shirt supplier. It's black. I can use my printing company. I can use a, a person to do my website black, but when it comes to like the major assets of like the at, the actual asphalt plant, the actual uh tools that we use, like the the oh, machine you that we use, from. right? All that stuff is either white or what well, white and German owned companies for the most part. What? They're the ones that dominate the construction industry as for producing the tools that we use to produce the product. Do you, of paper. Do you have your money? This is where we need. Do you have your money in a black bank? I have a back business account, yeah. Well, not not all of my money. This, no, this is where we need to dig in, though, right? No, I don't. This is this is where buy black yep. breaks down, right? Because to sustain a capitalist economy, you need a state actor, right? And the government, i.e., the state, has the right to procure those resources with violence, right? They have a legitimate excuse and mandate from the people to use violence to get those resources, and we can buy black all we want. Violence. Violence, that's what we got. That's what we got. <laughs> and, and we can, we can, we can, we can talk. We can buy black, but at the end of the day, we need labor, resources, and access to capital. And as black people, we can control our labor and where our consumers' dollars go. But unless we have a mass movement to, uh, you know, overthrow the government or to produce uh, social cultural change as to make capitalism and violence unacceptable. The, you know, the resources, access to resources and capital are always going to be controlled by those that dominate with social power through money. And those people like hate us, man. They're like the Koch brothers, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon. They're never they're not we're their competition. And I don't uh, I don't want to have a financial literacy conversation without talking about, hey, you know what, rather than emulate a white economy within black societies, maybe we need to think about what it looks like to do something different that still gets our our needs met for food, housing, education, and stuff like that. Because we can't just copy what white people are doing. As a as a revolutionary strategy. Do I have strategy. time to do that? Yeah. 
do I have time to do that or do I get that Coke brother money right now? Do I oh, get to the bag and then talk that shit? We got to we got to do both. Yeah, you, well, you can do both, right? You can, can do both. You know, like everybody got to have a job, right? Like everybody has to you got to you got to feed yourself, but I, what I don't think we should be doing is as a community, we shouldn't be saying Hey, look at these rich white people, right? Like I have a friend that posts in one of our groups, you know, secrets of the wealthy, like, uh, uh, like once a month. And it's like, yo, we're not secrets of the wealthy. Like we're not the crafts. We're not the Heinz's. We're not the Vanderbilt's. We don't need to know secrets of the wealthy. We need to know that like, Hey, we can all pay our bills and we can all, you know, uh, remove our dependence from these predators that are trying to, you know, slowly kill us as long as they can make money. Ooh, hey, Steve, you mentioned something no, earlier I, 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 uh, about violence. Um, I, I read somewhere, I'm not sure if it was this book or another book that I was reading, but it said the police department was really formed to protect business assets. One of the business assets were black bodies with convict leasing and those things. They were going out to get bodies to put in prison to help supply labor to large corporations. So. You made a great point. If we start like so, we start you know doing black this, black that, black this, black that. We have to keep in mind that we are still operating in a white man's capitalistic system, and they have the power, and all they have to do is just say so, and they can come and shut the shit down. For example, Wall Street, uh, Wall Street, or or we had a great example of that when they used the police and the government to move the Native Americans to build those pipelines. Now, I don't, recently. recently, so one thing that stood out to me, I was like, yo, a company can get the police to help them move protesters out of the way to do business? Yes. <laughs> uh, I thought the police were for the people. I didn't know the police would contract uh, security for big business. The rights of property owners. The rights of Therefore, property the people owners. who's taxes. paying the most exactly. money those into the system. The taxes. And that's why the black tax, the title is the irony of it because it's not helping us. We are we are losing real dollars is what the book is speaking to. Real dollars. Again, does not matter what you like, care. Or yeah, I don't want to think about racism. That's not what I want to focus on. I don't see myself as a black man. I see myself. Yeah, I think if you just focus on positive, none of that shit fucking matters. Right? Because racism think about your ass. It doesn't matter. 24-7. So it you doesn't fucking you matter. Want. You're going to pay more. You're going to get paid less. And now we're stuck trying to figure out and strategize what we're going to end up doing. Let me let me read this little portion. And I just want to just back up a little bit to try to to try to set up and paint a picture on how we got here. And just keep in mind, Jim Crow, we have people that are still living. Our parents lived through Jim Crow. So this wasn't something that was like in a distant past. This was something that was pretty recent. It says, uh, I just wanted to read this paragraph. It says, while, while this Jim Crow period may be hard to imagine, it is important to recall that this period, number one, the equivalent of black Americans per week was publicly lynched, burned alive, hanging by their fellow white citizens, and no white person has ever been convicted of these murders. Number two, the membership of white supremacy terrorist organization, the Ku Klux Klan, peaked at 4 million, which meant that up to 25% of white population had a relative who was a member of this organization. Now, just because you're a member don't mean you're not affiliated. So it's way more than that. 
Number three, entire black towns were destroyed with hundreds of black Americans were killed by angry white mobs. So all this thing, uh, this whole this whole thing about by black, black, black independence, black financial uh, independence, like Steve said, they have the ability to come in and just destroy all that shit without any type of reprise. Uh, number four, black soldiers returning from the war. So this kind of goes into like the respectability part politics. And that's something I want to get into in a second. It said black soldiers returning from World War One were being lynched in their uniforms by private citizens. That's heavy. Number five, black citizens had no political representation, almost no means to defend themselves, and they were severely restricted in almost all labor, capital services, and education markets. And this was such a violent period for black Americans who could be killed for, and this is what we're talking about, starting a business, accumulating wealth, and otherwise trying to improve their situation. And that was between 1910 and 1930s. 1.6 million African Americans fled the southern states for northern U.S. cities. And by 1920, a massive Black to Africa movement had developed to supported by millions of African Americans. So pretty much, man, our situation was so dire. We tried everything. We was trying so many things. And you know what we said? You know, fuck it. Let's just go back to Africa. And something... They got mad yeah, about that. <laughs> right, they got mad about that. They got mad about going? that for real. Right, where you like, going? Where you going? You about, <laughs> the fuck? Right. You about to take right. our money so, out of this country? Know, I don't think so. It, some people look at it and be like, man, what a bizarre idea. But if you just put yourself in their shoes, they say, hey, man, I even tried to join their military and be like an upstanding, contributing citizen. That didn't work. They hung me in my damn uniform. Nobody got convicted of that. You know what? I stopped begging them for money. We started our own community. What they do, they bomb that. They say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go get educated, and I'm going to make some more money, and I'm going to start my own business. What you do, you get hung, you get lynched for that. It's like, you lie. You lie. Damn if you do. Damn if you don't. But I'm glad black people are at least considering um, going back to Africa again. And just kind of like what Steve said, like you can only do so much within a system. Like, like you can only move at the speed of light within the universe and you can't go any faster than that. So as long as we're within the system, we kind of have to go by the rules of the system. So the only, only reason, the only way you can really break free is to shatter the system and start something new in which things are equitable. Um, those who need the most help get the most help. And we start valuing things like life and family and friends and love and all of those things that life are actually about instead of money, which is a tool to help enhance those things. Because that's all money is. It's, but it's not it's not that's true. Real. But think about places like Haiti. Well, where, okay. you know, when you Haiti. don't have access to the Western world, how that might impact the way your economy is able to develop or the way people are able to treat each other. And we have outside influences that could come in and, and distract things or think about, um, can you, can you um, expand on that? My spot? Oh man. I see. You mean um, like Haiti doesn't have access to like wealth creation? No, 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 no. Just this, it's the Capital. concept that 
there's been attempts for black people to recreate a black utopia and it gets thwarted by still outside influences. So it's still not just easy for us just to come together and kumbaya ourselves out of this oh, situation. Yeah. Oh yeah. That doesn't mean we don't that doesn't mean that we don't pursue these strategies though. And I don't right, want right, to, you know, right. we're not talking back against that, but it's just it's just like we have a, we have clear examples to where black people attempted to reestablish a way of life that was clearly interrupted by Western um, society. Right. Influences. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Like black people can't just go on like, you know, we can't just all move to Georgia and be like, hey, we're all going to cooperate now. And everyone, all the white people are going nah, to be. Gonna, work. It's right. Not that I mean, that's I mean, that's what happens in South America. And, you know, our boy Obama helped uh, in Ecuador and stuff like that. Other, any any uh, ideology that's not capitalism that is promoting a more. Uh, egalitarian distribution of resources is attacked by our military. Like we lead the charge on that. Violence. No, hey, what's y'all? What's y'all? What's y'all thoughts on the um, the SBA loans? In the book, the author gave information about research from like 2012, and he was saying that only two percent of black businesses was able to secure uh, financing from uh, the SBA. Uh, itself right and we fast forward to 2020 all right 2020 we all know some people that have got the sba loans of forty thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars uh a hundred fifty thousand dollars and they're doing uh you know my my dad made a comment he said that man you know what i've applied for sba loans over the past like 10 15 20 years and never have even got any kind of money at all. This is the first time that he's seen and also other black business owners down here in South Florida has been able to see like local businesses actually being able to have some form of access to capital. Now what they do with it is up to them, you know. Is it is it capital too late uh for some of the older businesses cuz some businesses are going to fall because of the COVID-19 virus anyways, but uh that money is, you know, is helpful. Um, but what's your thoughts on like the people, you know, taking advantage of the SBA? Walter, loans? let me ask you this. What is your daddy's first name? Walter. Oh, your, your daddy, your daddy's first name is Walter. Yep. All right. So the reason why I asked that, because the book uh, you were saying that your dad wasn't, uh, he's been applying for the SBA loans and he, and he couldn't get approved. And I was just thinking back on the book, maybe your dad had a black sounding name like Donnell or uh, Charles or something like that. You know, one of those old school nah. black, yeah. So Walter, I, yeah. So Walter, Walter can go. <laughs> Walter, <yeah. laughs> hey, how how you say his name, Harvey? Walter. <laughs> uh, if hey. you say it like that, you know he's black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know he's black. <laughs> yeah. Hold on, check this out though. So, yeah. so Walt. This is interesting that you would say that because like in working in a business with people who've been having those experiences for so long, then we come on the stage and we may be presented opportunities that they won't present it with or made avail for many years. Sometimes that, that even creates a, a challenge with us, right? Because we we receiving these opportunities and we're saying, well, this is what we're going to do. And the old head is scratching his old head saying, wait the hell up. Hold on. Hold on. You did what? You got what? And mm -hmm. it's so much distrust that 
then it sometimes can be difficult for us to understand how to move it forward. Or is that is that just been my own personal experience? <laughs> oh, that's probably that's probably been your own personal experience. I haven't I haven't dealt with that too much. But I, I can see where that can possibly happen though, you know. Hey, I wanna say this. Um can I I wanna I wanna jump in on the SBA loans. Mm-hmm. Um so in the state of Texas, they opened up the SBA loans for uh for homeowners. If you owned your home, then they would give you SBA loans to help you rebuild your home. So that was do- that was uh from this this uh flood that happened in South Texas. So the flood was so bad that you know a lot of people have homeowners insurance, but they don't really carry flood insurance. So they was providing a lot of these people after the hurricane SBA loans to rebuild their home. And one of the things that uh, then they came back and they did a study, they said only 12 percent of the home uh, of the black homeowners were uh, were given this SBA loan. And so they started looking into the why. One of the reasons why was because, first of all, there was a lot of people. Well, a lot of black people didn't get it because, number one, the obvious, a lot of black people weren't homeowners. Number two, the, the few black people that were homeowners they didn't have their paperwork in order. So um, it could be due to the flood, could have destroyed some of their paperwork. Or, you know, just go back to the book, man. We're new to this. They they never had right. paperwork on the house. They yeah, were just they, living yeah, there. What I'm saying is, yeah, either, it either it's whatever. real to them, but, you know, they they have questions. Just like the, the their same, their white peer have a question. The difference is, is the amount of resources that we have and 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 we're afforded to that we have access to and the amount of resources that they have that are access to. So it's easy for them to pick up a phone, call their dad or call their granddad and ask them about this mm-hmm. or that that goes with the home loan, the home loan that they don't understand how to fill out their paperwork. Bam, I can email it to you or is this, is that, and then you have assistance and you can turn in the correct paperwork. One of the things that they were saying was the black people, we a lot of us was turning in incomplete paperwork. And you can't, and so it's easy, it's convenient to say, oh, we just don't have our shit together or we don't know how to conduct business or. Now, why you think we was turning incomplete paperwork again? Move all those things aside that you already said. Those, all those are true. But why do you think we was turning in incomplete paperwork? It could be a myriad of reasons. But m- my point I'm making is, is that they have, they have a, uh, they're at, at an advantage because they have years and years of resources of resources available to them, whereas we don't have that. You know, we first-generation money, and we really don't have money. I live in a big, nice house. I own, I own a nice car. I understand that, but do you, do you think when those incomplete applications were sent in that other people in the family were given chances to look over them, or do you think the individual took it upon themselves with their limited knowledge and their limited resources to submit what they knew on their own? That's a good. That's a good question. I'm gonna have to go with the latter. Yeah, I think what Harvey is saying is that like we put all of these these um, expectation on black people or black folks. Immediately after saying that you've been disadvantaged from a system, you've been kept from knowing about a system, you haven't been educated on the system as a whole. So like when right. you approach the system and you need something from the system, it's your fault that you don't know how to complete it. It's like, well, damn, if if nobody ever taught me how to do algebra, how am I going to know how to do calculus? Right. Like, how, how are you? Right. But this? if there, if the there isn't is, a, a willingness to be open. 
Ah, then we not going to. Uh-huh. So you talking I'm about all, the I'm trust? For you you're talking about the trust in the internal trust within our community amongst ourselves, particularly between the old wealth and right. the new wealth. I'm so happy Walter said that. Nah, that's a personal experience. That lets me know that him and his father are on the same page, and that business is going to be here for a while. Because a number of people who I've spoken with who are in, in the similar situations where they're dealing with old money and new ideas, it's not moving as smoothly as they would like it to. Mm. And it's not just because they don't want to have things and everything don't go their way. It's when you speak about years and years and years of distrust that, quite frankly, we don't understand. Yeah. Because we haven't dealt with it personally. <laughs> we don't have that that that, that personal experience with the, the years and years of distrust. So one thing, one thing that I know that we may or may not know about the bros, dog, is you know we're all members of Omega Sapphire Fraternity Incorporated. But as a business that's been around here, or as a fraternity that's been around here for a hundred years, outside of IHQ, and we have all these bright minds, we have money, we have multimillionaires, maybe some billionaires. That's in the frat, and it's like even the financial literacy that we've gained as a frat. People who've been in the in the frat however long, people who've done all these, uh, wore all these different hats, where they've been on you know the local level, the grad level, the you know the district level, uh, grand level, whatever level they've been on, the frat still doesn't have any franchises, but yet people in the frat own franchises, so that knowledge is out there. The frat doesn't own any stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, because when you look at the statements, it doesn't show it. So it's like, even even in our own best of the best, elite of the elite, um, best, most illustrious flat, frat on the planet, found at HBCU, we're still not doing basic things that we've been around for 100 years. And these are 100, out of these 100 years, these are the brightest minds of the community, but we still haven't done basic things. At a certain point, we got to trust each other to get it done, dog. Like, if we can't, you got to think, if we can't do it on an educated frat level, dog, how are you going to expect people in the community who haven't been exposed to education or higher education to do it if we don't do it first? And it's like, it's a reason why we're not doing it, bro. And it's more than we don't know how. It's that trust thing, man. It's that trust thing, man. I mean, we don't have a lot of money. And, and, and for me to trust you with the little that I have, it's going to take a lot out of me because I don't have a lot of safety nets, you know. And you got that same anti-black Especially bias that you don't want to have that's working exactly. against you. You got exactly. the same. You got the same. Because, like Steve you. said, I mean, we all being uh, manipulated mm-hmm. and puppeteered by a system called capitalism. It's causing us to turn on each other. What you were saying, Steve? Well, yeah, it's it's individual. I mean, the trust, yeah, but like. How many millionaires and billionaires, you know, got all this money and are like, I'm just going to start giving it away to people and see what they do with it. I have enough for me. Like nobody's like that. Like every every uh, frat house funding conversation that I've ever had is always like, oh, well, I'm not doing that. Like anybody. I, I know several people on our line that could just buy a frat house in Tallahassee, which is not expensive and set it out. But. Uh, our chapter has been trying to buy a frat house, quote unquote, trying to buy a frat house for like 20 years. There's all these funds where everyone has to give $20. Yeah, it's like, okay. Like, if you, if you, if you enrich yourself. This is the thing with that too. Like, the frat house, like, that's out of purely selfish motives. 
Like that doesn't do nothing. A frat, yeah. a, frat isn't, a frat house isn't going to provide any goods or services outside right. of that weekend that that frat house is bumping. I'm talking about why the frat house don't have no Burger King. I mean, why the frat don't have no Burger King on an international Same level? reason. Right out there Same outside. reason. Right. But but what I'm saying, the difference is the frat house has no has no product or service. At least a Burger King provides a product or service. A gas station provides a product or service. You can get people in there to operate those. And it's not even coming out of the people in the frat's money. It's already in the frat. But if you yeah. look at the frat statements by the frat, it's still investing in bonds, dog. Like, that's so yeah. 1925, dog. That doesn't even qualify. But like, why don't the frat own Apple, dog? Why? Explain yeah. to me why you don't own Apple, dog. But everybody's on an Apple phone. Everybody yeah. subscribes to Apple services. Like these are basic investments. And it's not always just Majid needs to run the office and launch his initiative so that we can make this move, right? That's not the that's yeah, not the and answer. that's not the answer either, bro. And I'm saying like the frat just doesn't do anything that's it's too many checks, it's too many <laughs> checks and balances that have to be done to get that done and people won't agree with it. I'm just saying like we gotta think outside the box on a bigger level. Because otherwise, it's just going to be people like us on this phone call saying, hey, let's all put in $5,000 and buy this $25,000 property. And then you move forward. But it is what it is. Yeah. Five. The yeah, money bless. They got I got this flower money, that you can check out though. The money flower. <laughs> I got this oh, money flower. I think I think for me, Lenny, this book is just so good because I try to I don't want to be the person that's pissing on black folks' parade, right? You know, um, you know, I know for for those of us who are conscious about our community, we're serious about our growth. We're serious about our development. And these numbers don't be bullshitting, man. Like the Urban League has has a very similar study as this that they produce every year. So this this stuff isn't a shock. The shock to me is how we ignore it. The shock to me is how we pretend that it doesn't matter and how we I get I get why we do. But that's the shocking aspect of it. So I try to, you know, dance with us every day. And, you know, how do we stay focused on this this agenda, knowing that knowing very clearly that the end is not going to happen within my lifetime. But that's what legacy is about. Nothing's going to happen in your lifetime. Right. Only a, well, only a small part of the dream right. is going to happen in your lifetime. So you have to be willing and just be able to accept that you only going to get a piece of the, the dream. Like you're only here for a certain amount of time. And your role is to just play your part in your position. Have as much fun as possible. Fun. And leave something and that goes back to fun. that one time I asked Steve. I said, Steve, why do you fight? Why are you so heavy in activism? Steve said. Dude, I'm just planting the seeds to provide the shade for my children's and my children's children. And I was like, you know what? That's dope. And that's a selfless act. With that being said, I guess I'll start with you, Steve. To wrap up the book, if you rate this book one through 10, what you give it? <laughs> uh, rate this book one to 10. Oh, I hate doing this one. I, I don't I don't like this one. Um. Uh, I think I think on the information I give it a, a eight point five. On the solution I I give it a two point five. All right, so, so overall six. So, so damn. <laughs> no, actually, uh, eight point <clears throat> five and two point five. That's eleven. Five and a half. So you <clears throat> give it a five and a overall five and a half. 
so you like do you so you saying that you like the research oh, yeah. and the data and how he quantified a lot of it? Yeah, he had a, he had he got a lot for his ass time. <laughs> That's classic, Donovan. Donovan, <laughs> one through ten, what would you get in book? <laughs> um, I give it a nine. I like the uh, I like numbers. I like when people can um quantitatively explain stuff because um you know in this world when you tell people something's going on they they act like shit ain't true like this man tried to pressure another country to find dirt on his opponent no he didn't and people broke into the capital no they didn't like so it's good with these especially when you're dealing with psychopaths it's good to have numbers to kind of back up your claim and have a framework from which to work from um so that we can Hopefully, stop paying his tax. Majid, your thought? One through ten, what would you rate it? I probably, I probably give it a seven. I think it did a good job on on uh, establishing why some some of our people or some of our issues exist. Um, but I don't think it did a good job of. Um, and it could be the CPR book that I need to read to get it, but I don't think it did a good job of here's what's wrong. Here's how we fix it. I think that here's how we fix it is what we need to do alone because everybody talks about the system like for 30 years, like let's focus more on how to get up out of here. And, you know, like you said, like this, this it's our generation's duty to do a portion of it. Like whoever just said, like, I don't think we're going to get all the way out this generation, but as, as, as long as we can kind of maybe, just acquire some money, then I think we'll be on our on, on the right way, on the right, you know, track. I mean, oddly enough, selling dope and hip hop is really, really providing a lot of uh, wealth to a lot of people. I just hope that And you know what? I'm not mad. I'm not mad at that <laughs> statement because I said that before in a lot of in 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 and I think I think you're absolutely right. We just can't let the church folks come in and be like, oh, you can't say stuff like that. Because, you know, mm, exactly. we had to kill some slave masters to get to get free too. So there's still some things in the wilderness we're going to have to do to come out. Well, the black market has always been a successful place for black people. Exactly. Um, so that's not going to stop, especially when we're being priced out, mm-hmm. discriminated out, uh, biased out of every other system. The black market um, provides opportunities that the regular market can't. Although it prevents, it pre- presents a whole lot more risk than other markets. But hey, that's the cost of life. Based on this book, the black market was the only market that we were invited exactly. to. Exactly. Because if you weren't a sharecropper, you were a convict lease worker. You I wanted to go back to right, right quick, right quick. <laughs> I know, I know, we're wrapping it up. What we up? had the con, you had the convicts who were getting rented out to local farmers and in local industries when the women would go and visit their men who were locked up or go oh, and and and, yeah. and try to pick them up for their release they would just lock them up chain them up and rape them and they said it was a lot of biracial children that came out of that that really hurt we had no recourse, no protection under no law. Yeah, and they uh, wonder why we, we don't to. trust the law because it was never meant for us in the first place. Who are you going to call? The police? Shit, the police was the one that was raping mm-hmm. them. I, 
I, I'm sorry. That part, man, in the book, that, that drummed up some emotions in me. Harvey, what you think? And because of that, I'm going to say the book is a nine, nine and a half, man. I, I think I think we are on the, the escalator of progress one step at a time. It's a moving scale, but it's one step at a time. I don't know how we're going to do it <laughs> because that moving scale, if we're not taking steps on that moving scale, we're not going to get nowhere, you know, because um, time keeps moving forward. But But the book, for all the naysayers, once again, like Donovan said, it quantifies an experience and it doesn't take all day to do it. Like it's a very, very, very palatable, digestible read. It's not a it's not a difficult read. And I think that for 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 people who need to get involved and they need to understand why miseducation of the Negro is so important still today, this book is is like, okay, boom, here this is what he was talking about. Boom. And, you know, and, and it's not all about what you didn't do. This is what's happening around you. So this is why you need to be more conscious about what it is you're doing. I love the miseducation of the Negro. Absolutely. Likewise. I'll, I'll give this book a uh, a nine because of the amount of research and time that this brother put into. Damn y'all niggas generous. Yeah, bro. The, the guy put a lot of research, a lot of time into research and, and, and compiling this information. It was like Harvey said, it was a very easy book to read. Uh, I had the, the, the audible book. Uh, and on top of that, I think we as black men in general, uh, we got to become more serious about financial literacy, uh, education and leaving, leaving a legacy and what that actually looks like across the board. And we only have control over the the times and dedication and efforts as far as like what we do to build that nest egg and what we leave behind. Like so when we die and go on to heaven or however the afterlife may be, if we don't leave any kind of financial resources, no no, no business uh for our kids. Uh, or real estate for our uh, grandkids to 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 have to have in and place to live on, and also uh, if we don't um, pass down the information, I think what's missing in translation in this book is like the information is not passed down. We all have at least one auntie, or uncle, or a cousin, or a mentor that we can tap into to get this information uh, from. Like we got to be able to um, suppress our ego and humble ourselves and go seek knowledge about any kind of uh, financial uh, financial obligated situation we're about to in- dive into, whether it comes to real estate, whether that's uh, for insurances, whether that's for uh, hell, the stock market, whether that's for uh, buying or purchasing a car, all that stuff. We got to humble ourselves and go out and seek knowledge the same way we do when it com- comes down to All right. So here's my thoughts. We have a dog. We have a nice standard-sized poodle named Shadow. And we have these things called pill pockets. And every time we have to give our dog some medication, we get these nice, tasty treats. And and, it's, and it has like a, uh, it's concave. It's an opening in the middle. And we stick the pill in there. And we say, come here, Shadow. Come and get your treat. And he'll take the treat. And he'll smell the treat. And then he'll take it and he'll, be take, he'll take his medicine, not even knowing. We'll disguise his medicine up inside the tree. Um, I used to date this girl. Her dad was a preacher. And he said that uh, one of the things about being a pastor is you have to, when, when the pastor, they do either the hacks at the end of the sermon 
or they can sing. So if you if you're a singing pastor, you'll start singing towards the end of your sermon, and people start standing up, and the organ start playing, right? And then, or you can hack, hack, and right? I say all that to say is it's a form of entertainment. And sometimes you got to entertain these niggas in order to feed them. Or like with my dog, you got to give my dog a treat in order for them to take the things that's good for them. I think that this book is all lettuce, tomatoes, a bunch of beets, some carrots, and a lot of healthy stuff. And it's a plate of lean meats, all that, with no seasoning on it. So, yes, I just <laughs> ate a healthy meal. <laughs> but the shit was nasty, but I know it's good for me, right? Mm -hmm. So, right, we have Blah. a buzz podcast where we read books. <laughs> One of the struggles that I have trying to grow the podcast is a lot of people don't read books. And we're talking about black people. Right. Because of whatever reason, that wasn't something that we had time to uh, to sit down and lounge around and read books. Nigga, we was out in the field of planting okra and corn and cotton. And so you, and well, we wasn't. We was out here getting taxed. So, I mean, who got time I mean, to read? Oh, oh, getting taxed. So what I say all this to say, this brother, Sean Rochester, is an engineer. And if anybody have any idea, work with any type of engineers, they have the most technical personalities to be an engineer. That's how... Was he chemical? That's how he wrote this book. This book was... I got this book. This book was very enriching. It was food for the soul, but it wasn't soul food. Um, so, with all that to say, the book was boring as hell. You gotta change your palate, bro. Listen, <laughs> the book is it's still a book. And I want to be able to sit down and the book keep my attention. Um... Respect, when when respect. I when I sat down when I was reading the intro, the intro pretty much summed up the book. Then it it didn't start getting good right. until he started hitting my nerves with the stuff that was going on in Jim Crow. Even though I've heard this before, it was just you know reiterating like, damn, that's when it started getting good. Then it started getting good when he was like, what y'all said, he was quantitating the things that we always say. So it's a good book to arm yourself when you're having these discussions with people, when you're trying to change the mindset and the ideology of your coworker by the coffee machine that's never going to change any goddamn way, so you're wasting your time, you know, it's good for that. But so readability, <laughs> I give this book a uh, three. Facts <laughs> and the information that I gain and I grow from this book, I give this book an eight and a half. So, um, Overall, man, I'm just going to sit on a six for on this book. So I give this book a six. This is not a book you're going to be like, oh, man, I couldn't put it down. Hey, hey, hold, hold on, though. Hold on, though. Hold on, though. Hold on. I'm asking myself, would 18, 19, 21-year-old Harv Hinton understand this book? Because I made stupid decisions when I look back at it. And all I had was my daddy telling me I was making a stupid decision, but he won't tell me why, so I just mm. thought he was just hating on me. That's horrible, dog. That's Damn. horrible. 
So you didn't trust your daddy. So the same trust that you didn't have nah. for your parents is the same he, lack of trust that black he, exactly. <laughs> I thought he know the hell right. he was talking about because he couldn't explain nothing to me. All he was telling me that I was stupid. How you gonna tell me I'm stupid and I just graduated with honors? <laughs> oh, here's the challenge, dumbass. Here's the book smart, dumbass. <laughs> you know what the I'm challenge saying? is to be able to write a book where it's entertaining, a page turner, and feed you. All at the same time. I get that. But like, I mean, I was reading the Browder Files back then. You know what I'm saying? I, I had a conscious mind back then. I would have better read this book back then because I didn't understand. I had a conscious mind. We had read all that shit. Naeem Akbar. We had read Behold a Pale Horse, The Unseen Hand. We did all that. But I didn't know what was really going to happen to me. All I knew, my uncle told me white people was going to accept you before your race. My daddy told me when I was buying a house in the white folks' neighborhood that I was stupid. He didn't tell me why I was stupid. Now I get why I was stupid. All I knew was like, why are you hating on me, man? I'm buying a house. Ain't that what I'm supposed to do? He's like, nigga, what are you doing? That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that house that you stayed in, Lenny. You know what I'm saying? So like, what am I supposed to do? What the stupid. hell is going on here? My daddy telling me this is stupid. And this is all I was, what? You trying to keep up with the Joneses. What are you talking about? <laughs> he didn't know, bro, he might not have had the worst. How did he know how to tell yeah. me? How, he so he should have read the book. He lit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to another podcast episode of the Girls Book Show. Rate us, subscribe, and share with the family. Thank you.